the transplant coordinator comes around the corner and I looked at the herd. She, I was like, no. She was like, yeah. And she's like, there's a heart. And I was like, oh shit. <laughs> so she was like, you know, you need to get ready and prepped by this point. So I think I need to get ready for like four o'clock. Anyway, I was way too engrossed in my presentation. So I'm there like just doing my presentation. And you're like, like oh, I'm going to do it again. I have shit to do, okay? I can't, I can't yeah. do this right now. <laughs> I have to spread the organ donation message, guys. <laughs> Welcome to Keep It In Our Podcast. I'm Zana. And I'm Jessica. And we have another sexy, spicy episode for you today. Um, We are going to be joined by Eliza. She is a transplant survivor. She's had a heart transplant. She was diagnosed, I think, at the age of 12 with cardiomyopathy um, and had a serious heart condition for many years. Uh, Her health declined over a significant amount of time, leading her to be on the transplant list and needing an urgent transplant. Uh, Her story is pretty amazing. She's over in the UK as well. So she's joining us via Zoom, which is awesome. Um, but it was such an interesting, amazing story. The so you know the good. passion she has for life, and you know staying motivated and staying on track is pretty inspiring. So. And she um met the queen. Yeah. So <laughs> stay definitely listen story. to the whole episode, and she'll talk about how she met the queen. So that's mm. pretty epic. Yeah, but this is a long episode today, guys, because we covered so much. We actually just couldn't stop asking questions because yeah. it, it was such a fascinating and amazing story. Um, so we're just going to do a little quick intro today. Probably not going to be quick because we said it's going to be quick, but it's probably not going to be quick. No, nah, it never is. <laughs> we just um, keep talking. But yeah, I am going to hand it over to Jess. Jess is going to do her spillity first today. Yes. Oh, time. So we were really uh, recently in New Zealand. Mm. Um, we went to Christchurch for a conference, a nursing conference, um, which was epic. Um, but I had a little bit of annual leave saved up. So I decided to take an extra week and stay mm. in New Zealand because I've never actually been there before. Um, hired a little car, went from Christchurch up to Queenstown. Um, and it was just so awesome. Like I haven't solo traveled such a long time. I haven't actually like been on my own for such a long time. Yeah. Um, and it was just amazing. Like when I was in Christchurch, well, not Christchurch, when I was in Queenstown, um, I went and did the Onsen Hot Springs. I just relaxed. I took amazing photos. I drank wine by myself. I went out for dinner by myself. I played in the snow. And the whole time I was there, I was just like, fucking, I love my company. Yeah. I was like, I fucking love me. I can't believe it was snowing. <laughs> It was like, snowing. what a joke. It's like it's spring and you go on this holiday, this nice holiday, you're going to go relax on these hot springs oh. and it snows. Like, oh, but it was like perfect. Dances. It was like perfect though because I got like a good mixture of like nice weather and then snow and it actually made me stop and like relax because mm. I'm such a go, go, go girl that it actually just like made me go, it's a little too cold outside. Yeah. I'm going to stay inside with a nice cup of tea. Yeah. But well, as soon as it hit 4 p.m., man, I was on the wine. But. Yeah, and you had that alarm go off as well while you are in – yeah, there's a little creepy alarm that goes off in Queenstown. It's like, woo, in the entire city. Yeah. And everyone's like, there's me and the tourists stopping going, holy shit, is that an earthquake? <laughs> like, what's going on? And no like, one else is reacting. Volcano. <laughs> and then I found out it's just a fire alarm when there's a fire that's in the town. They just do one alarm and it just alerts the fire brigade. There you go. But I was like, literally like, fuck, earthquake. Small town things. I was like, earthquake, <laughs> tsunami. Like, when I was in Indonesia, I was always like, if I hear a fucking alarm, like, it means tsunami. Yeah. I'm always on high alert. Yeah, it was a lovely time. Yeah. I enjoyed hanging out with myself. And now I'm back to reality. <laughs> back to us. Back to reality, Stop guys. But I miss you guys, so. I'm yeah. Back. Um, Zana's spilled the tea. Not a very 
not a very positive. No, happy it's not a very one. spilling of good tea. No, it's spilling of the bad, very bad. You know, the bottom of the tea that's really shit and it's got all little bits in it. That's yeah. the, that's the tea I'm spilling that's today. A great way to explain it. it. Really is. Yeah, the soggy shit tea. Yeah. At the so it's it's the reason why Zana missed um, a few episodes ago the introduction because we had a few little things going down. So yes. So a couple of weeks ago. Um, we had a podcast, obviously, <laughs> yes. and we had a, a, a visit from a special little guest yes. um, and it was Peppy. Um, unfortunately, Peppy is not here today because he is no longer with us, which is extremely sad. But I am carrying him today while we're recording this podcast. He is around my heart and he will be there, you know, ongoing. Um, so, yes, it's been a very, very sad time, very difficult time for, you know, Judy and me. Um, and I really feel for anyone out there going through the same thing because it's pretty fucking rough. Um, it and it just takes time. And I think, yeah, grief and pain takes time. It's not going to go away. It's not going to disappear anytime soon. You just get better at coping with it and learning how to, you know, navigate those feelings and um, find other ways, I guess, to to focus and deal yeah. with it. But and it's he, was been, in, he was in the last episode, which was yeah, so, well, not, which is sorry, really spe- it's actually super special because we've been talking about him so much on, you know, all the podcasts. Yeah. And then he made an appearance on the neurodiversity episode because he's neurodiverse. I know. So sweet. And he got to make a little appearance and I love that he made that appearance because that was the last time that he could have been on the podcast. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, in a way fate may have planned that. Yes. Um, and also he had a super special last day. Um, it kind of all happened really quickly. So it wasn't something you know, that we had to kind of, I guess, deal with or cope with for a long time. He mm. he had such a great last day and had a great, you know, trip to the beach and we went on a painting trip and we did a paint and sip and we actually painted him. So yeah. how that aligned with, you know, the, I don't even know, the pet heaven, yeah. it somehow did. I know. And, <laughs> and his very last day he had strawberry milk and nuggies. Oh, my God. I'm going to, we, we're going to put that little photo in the corner because yeah. that is the best photo yeah. I have ever the seen in one. my entire life. I've never seen a happier thing oh, yeah. in my life. That's the best photo. Like, the strawberry wow. Milk one. It's oh, almost yeah. as good as Judy's face. And he had like, strawberry milk. oh yeah. And he had shit. so many nuggets, like for his final meal, <laughs> so like many so many nuggets. Oh, the people that like, you know, gave us support and or gave Judy support was amazing. You know, mm-hmm. we got things delivered. Our, our, our table behind us was full of flowers for weeks. Yes. Um, and yeah, we thank every single one of you for, yeah, giving us support through that time. And yeah. I feel for anyone also going through that because it's pretty tough. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, we will go on, we will move on, we will, you know, continue for Peppy and yes. uh, I'll have him always here. Yes, by the way, he's cremated in, in the necklace. That's yeah, why he's in the necklace, which is super cute, which is from Pets in Peace yeah, and they beautiful. delivered it in a beautiful little truck and they came and delivered it straight to my door. So, yes. yeah, super sweet, amazing little touches that you can do for, you know, keeping your pet around longer. Yeah. Than hopeful. Well, hopefully yeah. we didn't make you sad, guys, because we got a really good episode. So we'll yes. crack into it. Um, we also just want to quickly talk about the gin we're drinking today. Oh, yeah, because we love gin. <laughs> us gals love a gin. Yeah, so we are drinking gin tonica as we are every single week because they give us these amazing little bottles, um, which are super easy. If you want one or two drinks, you can share it with a friend. You know, this one's 1.7 standard drinks. It's pretty great. Um, and it's this one is so funny because I was reading the title of it and the, the company is called EARP Distilling Co., but it's like ERP. <laughs> Like, why is that funny? Erp. Oh, it's from Erp Distillery. <laughs> and it's an aged gin, so it's quite interesting, this one. Um, yeah. Quite smelly. We didn't love it. It's unusual. Yeah. But, I mean, I, I, I smashed a glass but and got another one But if you love an aged so. gin, you probably would love it. Yeah, yeah. So definitely try it. So yeah. Try it out. Um, But anyway, we hope you enjoy the episode. And otherwise, keep your gin up. I hope you guys are also drinking. And we hope you enjoy. Okay. <laughs> Bye.
right, guys, we're diving deep into this episode. We are so very excited to have Eliza with us. Yay. Welcome, Eliza. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on to our podcast. Whereabouts in the UK are you? I'm in Cornwall. So it's like the little shoe at the end of the UK. Oh. Yeah, I'm terrible at geography, but I'll have a look after this. Yeah, they've got some pasties there. Don't they have some some spe- special pasties in Cornwall? Do you call it a pasty? Yeah, just pasties. Pa- just pasties. Do you guys call it a pasty? Yeah. I call it a pasty. <laughs> you're more you're more English than them. Pasty. A pasty, please. <laughs> <laughs> is it all, is it really no, the one I say in Cornish is like pasty. Oh. Like, pasty. Yeah. Not pasty, it's like pasty. Okay, oh, well, there you go. Learning something new every day. <laughs> well, love that. Now, yes. before we dive into the episode, we obviously know where you're from now, but we want to dive into yeah. your spill the tea because this is what we do every episode and it's fun and we want to know <laughs> about you. <laughs> Give it to okay. us. Um, I don't know like, how funny it is, but it happened to me yesterday and it was a bit like a oh shit moment. Um, <laughs> I've been trying to get some form of contraception for quite a while but it never seems to work out so my transplant team are like always on at me about having some form of contraception because they all they don't want me to get pregnant as a transplant patient like you know with no with no like I don't know planning I suppose um so I mean even at the start of the year I was trying to get a coil and then just things kept getting in the way and it wasn't happening um and then it got to a couple of weeks ago and um, my transplant team was still pushing, like, you need to get some form of contraception. And I'm like, no, I don't want my mental health to be affected. Like, go away. Because I really <laughs> am affected by um, the the hormone. That, I don't know what oh, the hormone yeah. is called. The pill. Life, I had the pill. I was like a complete nightmare on the pill earlier in the year. Like, I think my relationship ended because of it. And I just, anything I just cried out. Like I was working with an old like volunteer once and they were just a bit abrupt to me and I just started crying. It was awful. Oh yeah. Anyway, so I ended the pill, got back into like, you know, my natural cycle and, you know, feeling a lot more grounded. So um, I've been kind of like dating a few guys and I was like, oh, I should probably, you know, get some form of contraception again. Um, So... I plan to have the implant. So I saw my uh, like sexual health nurse, had a chat with her, and I was like, I think I should go for the call. And she's like, no, I, I think you should go for the implant. And then we had this like coil implant like standoff for about 10 minutes. And I was like, okay, I'll go for the implant. So that was a few weeks ago. And the date of the implant to be put into my arm was yesterday. Great. And um, <laughs> so... I'm going to Copenhagen at the weekend and I had this conversation with my my family the night before this implant going, do you think I should be having this implant before I go to Copenhagen? I I don't really want to like anything to ruin this trip to Copenhagen. And um, so didn't really think about it, just thought I'll go, go there, just have a chat with them. An hour before my appointment, I get a call from the medical team saying, oh, um, all our implants are being um, sent back to the like maker of implants because um, there's been a fault with oh, the no. implants. <laughs> my appointment. And they're like, oh, yeah, someone's had the implant and they had a, a blood clot. And I'm like, that's the last thing you need. <laughs> yeah, like I'm getting on a flight. I'm a patient. Like that's why I can't have one of the different pills. Is because um, 
it like causes blood clots and like I'm very susceptible to blood clots to then go in and then to say oh yeah you could have nearly got a blood clot oh my god well wow. it sounds like you dodged a bullet there like yeah I dodged a fucking bullet yeah I did maybe, um, maybe it's a note to get the coil yeah so <laughs> maybe just get, get the coil get the coil done <laughs> yeah so then we had the conversation I was just like I'm gonna have the call. And she was like, "Yeah, I think you should." And I was like, <laughs> no, "You're like, I told you, doctor. I told you." It's oh. so frustrating. So now, strike three, the coil. Okay. Um, oh god. After yeah. Copenhagen. <laughs> yeah, after. After. You get that yeah. bad after Copenhagen. After. Nothing's gonna ruin Copenhagen. Oh nice. god. Oh, <laughs> it's so hard as a woman though, going through all this, and you got to like, you know, protect yourself against bloody pregnancy. I like, know that old oh, thing. It's such a fucking pain. It is. <laughs> and guys, don't think about this at all. It's so. F- Annoying. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Definitely yeah. annoying. Oh, well, thank you for sharing. Yeah, thanks for and sharing you know that. what? Get the coil. Yeah. <laughs> Get the coil. Yeah. I haven't even told anyone about that. So, yeah, the first to know. Well, they know, they know now. Yeah. <laughs> love it. Love it. Now, before we obviously dive into the topic of this podcast, which is about your transplant journey, we want to, like, know a little bit about you, a little bit about Eliza. Like, where'd you grow up? What have you done with you? Like, you know, where'd you go to school? Just all those kind of things. We want to learn about you. Okay. Um, so I grew up in Devon. So Devon is like the county next to Cornwall and they almost have like a rivalry. Um, so I grew up in Devon for the first 18 years of my life and then moved over the border to Cornwall. Um, I, I mean, it's hard not to talk about my heart and my health because it kind of like weaves the whole way through so I'll tell you a bit about that as well through all of this um I guess I should start right at the start I grew up and was born at my dad's hotel restaurant so we were in the middle of the countryside and from the age of three or four when I could walk and talk I'd be going having breakfast with strangers in the in the breakfast room um so naturally I was always chatting to people from all over the world which I think still stands and I'm really like you know open and happy to just chat with like random people which maybe isn't always the safest thing but (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah so I grew up in a hotel restaurant with ducks and chickens we had goats and it was all very idyllic um everything was like you know pretty normal till I was around 12 um when I when they found out I had a heart condition um and then from that point I guess everything was kind of revolved around my heart but I still tried to be like a normal person and a normal child and I'd always say um I've had a I have a heart condition but it doesn't affect me so I mean you know you kind of take the perks from that and you you get out of PE for like the whole of your secondary school life, <laughs> yeah, which was brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I hid in the library because I was a bit of a nerd. Um, but yeah, it was just pretty normal growing up, just like trying to do exams and lack not many boys, to be honest. I was a bit lanky and a bit like, that's a bit ugly back then. <laughs> um, but <laughs> that comes later on um but yeah pretty normal apart from at age 14 having a pacemaker so at age 14 I had a pacemaker my said my my heart team took me in for surgery to like kind of test my heart out to see like almost what it could and what it couldn't do and it stopped three times in that period I was under 
And then they were like, oh shit, she needs a pacemaker. So I came out nice. with a pacemaker. Um, and I had more in common with a 70 year old than I did with some of my own age at that point. Oh, yeah, God. I can imagine. Yeah, the ward you would have been on <laughs> after as well. You would have been with all the oldies. Yeah, exactly. I'd go to these hostel appointments and look around, and everyone was like, OAP slash retired. Yeah. It was, um, I think that's the point where you transition from kids hospital to adults hospital and you look around and you're like oh shit like this isn't good yes so when, um, when, when did you find out so you were quite young when you found out but like did you have symptoms like how did you actually get the diagnosis that you had a heart condition yeah so it was completely out of the blue um it's have you like heard of young people who kind of uh playing sport or they're doing something and then they just almost fall fall down oh yeah mm-hmm. dead kind yeah. of thing yeah. we're, we're both unregistered nurses <laughs> we see that right. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I see you and ED yeah <laughs> um so I think it's like sudden cardiac death I think that could have potentially been me because it was like an undiagnosed heart condition yeah. so um do you did you get a swine flu in Australia Back in twenty ten. Yeah, well, we, not badly. I don't think we got it bad, but no. we did we got the injection okay. rolled out here pretty quickly. Yeah. Well we got it bad. And um they thought I got it and I was like ten years old at the time. And I got really ill with it and I got taken to uh like my local, you know, main hospital. And it was Christmas Eve and um my breathing got heavier. I was really struggling. Like there was just a lot going on on my lungs and my chest. So they gave me like a, you know, like the blue inhaler for asthma. Ventolin. They gave me that gas, but through a mask, yeah, uh, which so makes your heart go faster. Yes. Yeah. Um, but my heart obviously couldn't cope with that, but they yeah. didn't know that because they didn't know I had a heart condition. Yeah. So they were giving me all this gas and then I was, yeah, just like not able to cope. My heart was going faster and faster and I had a respiratory arrest. Oh, so the crash team came, I got taken down to the um, intensive care and that's when they scanned my body and actually went, oh, she's got a heart condition. Right. Um, wow. And then they sent me to the kids hospital. Wow. And then that's when they were like, oh yeah, shit, she's got some like genetic conditions going on here. Yeah. Um, and then that, yeah, that's when it all started really. So I'm, you know, I'm pretty grateful. Like I had that first 12 years of my life normal because mm-hmm. I think, you know, that the first 12 years are very kind of important in, you know, how you develop and how your mindset is and so not being, you know, wrapped up in cotton wool for that first 12 years of my life was really good. I think. Yeah. And then yeah. it all kind of took a turn because you had to yeah. kind of think about things like, not doing PE and <laughs> and having a I mean, pacemaker. I always hated yeah. PE. Yeah. 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 So <laughs> with the pacemaker, like what was happening to you that required you to have a pacemaker? So were you having an irregular heart rate? Was that what was going on? So um, I had uh, a few episodes where I was dancing. So I was like a dance class and this dance class was – in the same building as where my dad played squash. I don't know if you know what squash is. You yeah, probably yeah, we got yeah. squash. Uh, you got squash <laughs> in Australia. Um, so yeah, I was doing like my dance stuff and then my dad was playing squash and um, all of a sudden something just tweaked and my heart just was like doing this, mm-hmm. like, but not stopping. You know, like if you're exercising and you get that, like, but it just wasn't stopping and it just went on and on and on. And I was like, this isn't, this isn't good. So um 
I ran to where my dad was in the squash courts and I was like, dad, like my heart's going, I don't know what to do. And he just stared at me and like, just stared at each other. Aww. There was no one answering the ambulance. There was none of that. It was, I just, we'd never experienced that before. Yeah. Um, and it did stop eventually, but that was the trigger to then have more investigations. I thought I think they call it investigations. Um, and then that's when my heart was stopping on when I was in theatre. Yeah. And then it was at Easter. So everyone was off on holiday or the doctors were on holiday. And so I had to stay in a bed for a week, not, not able to move. Wow. <laughs> so it was fun. Um, so yeah, I always, it always seems to be, I get ill at like Christmas or Easter or like when it's like a really big fuck off holiday. Yeah, great timing. <laughs> no one's around. Fabulous, fabulous. So you would have gone yeah. back to school, I guess, after your holiday with the pacemaker. Uh, obviously very different situation for a lot of other kids that that you were hanging around with. What was that experience Mm. like, you know, going back to, you know, kids that were running around and doing those things um, like compared to, I guess, how your life had changed? I think I was still pretty like able bodied at that point. Um, But I just really, I covered it up. You almost like minimalize yourself to appear normal. So you do the least things that look normal which then everyone else doesn't really care, do they? Like no one, in, even if you're a normal able body person, no one really takes any notice of you, let alone if you're just yeah. really trying to not show a certain thing about yourself. Yeah. 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 Were, you, were you having to take um, like daily medication and everything like that as well during high school? <laughs> when I was 14, I think when I had the pacemaker, no, but when I was doing my GCSEs, I'm not sure if it's the same in Australia, GCSEs, it's like, you know, your first kind of big um, examinations. So I remember having like my, my maths GCSE come up and they were just like giving me all these heart medications that were like making me so drugged up. And then I had an appointment on the day of my um, my maths GCSE exam. And it was just all a bit like, ah, what's more important? Like, you know, not going to have another chance to get this exam, but I need to go to my hospital appointment. Um, and then being on all these medications and then trying to tell the teacher you're on all these really hardcore medications and you're just basically a bit of a druggie, really. <laughs> yeah. I always say that like to like my friends, because like, I don't really drink. I don't take drugs like recreational drugs, but I am like pretty much the biggest druggie out for my friends and family. <laughs> the amount of drugs I do take, but it's my it's my little joke. Yeah, you're like I got a blue pill, I got a green pill, I got a pink pill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely, yeah, exactly. So what happened between that that point, I guess, and your transplant? How did your life transpire between those two points? Yeah, like did you always know you had to have a transplant, or was there like a moment that you found out where you like this is actually something that has to happen now yeah so there was a moment um I was like around my 16th birthday um so I was around 16 um you know living my life 16 like I'm so great I'm an adult now not, but, you know you think it don't you, you do it 16 for sure yeah yeah and then I go for this hostel appointment with my um cardiologist and he just completely burst that bubble and it's like you're going to need a heart transplant one day. But he said it in a way, I feel like male doctors can sometimes be a bit uh, unaware of emotions and effect, like the effects of words being said. So 
it, you know how doctors just kind of like talk, talk, and it's like almost half that goes over your head. You're like, yeah, they're whatever, very mono- monotone. They're yeah. just like, yeah, like a robot. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And then the next minute, I'm like, transplant. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. And then obviously, like, the emotion just hit. And it just felt like being hit by a bus or something. Like that word is just such a big, scary word, especially to a 16-year-old, mm. where mm. until that point, I I thought I had a condition, but I was normal mm-hmm. and that wouldn't affect me. So all of a sudden I'd gone from this repeating, I have a heart condition, but I'm normal, like nothing, it doesn't affect me to like, oh, I have a heart condition and I'm gonna need a transplant. <laughs> um yeah. So yeah. So going back home after that because uh, my points for appointments were in Bristol, and so that's about two hours from home. So it was all these long car journeys home with lots of reflection and thinking, what the fuck is going to happen now? Wow. Like, when am I going to need the transplant? Because you know it's so uncertain with transplant. You don't know if you're going to need a transplant when you're like forty or if you're twenty. Like, it's just. <clears throat> Whenever your heart goes to fuck, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, God. That's, wow. that's, that's heavy for a 16 year old. Yeah, for anybody, definitely. even at someone at 30, 40, 50, it's like a, it's a yeah. really heavy thing. But going through hormone changes, growing up as a teen, like that's exactly that's It wouldn't shit. have made sense to anyone that you were friends with. It would have been a completely polar opposite life to what they were living. It would have been yeah, like, it very was hard. Super, super lonely. It was, it was so lonely, but I almost. It was, I just, I just was really tough about it. I just almost didn't t- think too much about it. And I think I do that now. And I wouldn't say it's a particularly healthy thing. So it's almost like you don't think about it. It's not happening. And then all of a sudden it's like, it's, it's happening here. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's a coping mechanism, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and, you know, not many people that are young have heart conditions, which is like how it should be. But it's nice. It would be nice to you know know people on that similar stage at that point. But then, uh, along with that, there were groups for young people. But I was almost too stubborn to want to join them because I felt like joining that group would be almost me like saying, "Yeah, I failed. Like I'm mm. not healthy. I need to be part of this group to be supported." Yeah. But in my head, I was like, "I don't need to be supported. Like I've got this. Like." I'm a normal human. <laughs> That's just the thing that keeps out. It's like, I'm normal. No, I'm just going to keep going. Wow. Um, I wasn't. Yeah. So when you had that appointment with the doctor at 16, had they ever been mm. talk about the word transplant before that? Or did you go to that appointment and then all of a sudden he's just like, boom, transplant? Yeah, it was like a boom transplant moment. Wow. That's a really like that's just yeah. that's heavy. So then obviously what's what's happened after that? Were you you had your pacemaker in, you've had your appointment, they've thrown this transplant word at you. Um, did you just carry on with life? Did you get unwell? Did you do quite well for a while? Like obviously something led you to have a transplant and you're still very young. So mm. how did that kind of eventuate? Yeah, so I haven't actually told you what my heart had so I um had cardiomyopathy which is kind of the most well-known uh conditions you have before having a transplant and it's when the muscle on muscle of your heart thickens so it's almost like it gets so thick it can't pump properly which then causes all the issues in the heart failure and I had that because I had Danon's disease which is like a super rare um 
condition, which is like a muscle weakening disease and then causes cardiomyopathy. Um, so after that point, um, I was finishing GCSEs and then I was then doing A-levels. And I think almost those GCSEs and A-levels saved me. I think having a focus was so important, like having, okay, I need to get through this X, Y, and Z, like need to get my maths, English GCSE, so I can then go and do A-levels. Because in my head, although I might being told I need a transplant, I'm like, if I don't get the exams, I'm not going to have a life. Oh <laughs> and actually, like, like, cause you know, they just drum it into you at school, oh, don't yeah. they? Like, you know, you're going to be a failure if you don't do this. Um, so I got through my, um, GCSEs, my A-levels. And then once I finished my A-levels, I got a place at uni, but in my head, I was just like, I can't go. Like I can't move to Brighton, which is, um, eight hours away from Cornwall. Cause I'd moved to Cornwall at this time. And I was just like, fuck, no, that is not going to work. Like by that point, although I'd finished my A-levels, um, I was getting really dizzy in exams and I was staying with my friend at that point because my parents had moved to Cornwall. So all this was going on. My parents had moved to Cornwall. I was living with my friend in Devon whilst doing my exams. And there was this one moment where we were driving back to our house and it was like a really bumpy road. And I think she'd given me, um, not paracetamol, but I think it was like an... I can't remember the name of it, but it's like a similar to paracetamol, but you shouldn't have it if you have a heart condition. And I think I took it because I was so out of it and we were going up this bumpy road and it kind of like bumped a bit. And I thought we'd flipped over in the car because my, my brain just, I was so dizzy. Um, So that was a bit of a, oh shit, like this isn't good moment. And I then couldn't run to the bus like I used to. And I'd walk up the stairs at school and I'd almost play a game with myself where I wouldn't breathe to try and trick my heart into thinking I wasn't going up the stairs. So then I wouldn't have heart palpitations. Wow. And it's fucking, it fucking crazy. Like what I did to try and Hope. be normal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. So you were just trying to do that and you're just trying to push through for the exams. But in the back of your mind, you're like, I really need to see the doctor. Like I really need another checkup. I'm seeing the doctor all the way through this and they're saying like, yeah, you're not great. Like your function is like 20% of your heart, your heart functions 20%. Um, so it wasn't great at that point, but I was still just kind of getting through it. And then once A-levels had finished, like I said, I was like, can't go to uni. So I just went and lived in Cornwall with my parents. And then for about two years, I just struggled, tried to do some work in shops, but then it slowly got to a point where I couldn't. Um, Everything ended with, oh, I'm too ill to work. And then, um, and then it just got to a point in 2018 when my team were like, you're in really bad heart failure. We need to send you for an assessment at your, at the transplant hospital. So yeah, it was like a good year and a half, two years of just like, I don't know, trying to survive and feel normal when I was really not normal. And I'd moved to Cornwall. All my friends were like living their life at uni in London. And yeah. and I was just at home with my mum and dad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Getting that's worse. Tough. Yeah. That's really tough to deal with, mm. especially things like social media and stuff mm. and just kind of sitting back resting because, you know, you have to rest and then seeing all this mm all your friends' lives kind of progressing. But yeah. that was a really interesting thing because although 
I was getting really ill. I was losing a lot of weight. So I probably looked almost in a really skewed way, the best I've ever looked because I, I had the cheekbones that I always wanted, like, cause I was so thin and I was living in a beautiful place. So through social media, it was literally my only way of feeling better about myself was picking up really great pictures. Although yeah. my life was awful. It's like you said, it's just so amazing what you can do by create curating this Instagram of pictures of me on the beach. Like, you know, I only need to walk for two seconds to get that picture of me looking like I'm walking on the beach when I actually was not walking on the beach (laughs) or, you know, all dressed up going to dinner, like, you know, just sitting down for the whole time and not eating, like literally eating a portion like that big because I can't eat. And it's, I think probably a lot of my friends didn't realize how bad I was because I was almost putting this front on. Yeah. Yeah. They definitely I was wouldn't. almost yeah. so I was so embarrassed about my life and what it'd come to. Yeah. Oh so were you on a transplant list at this time? Or because like, obviously you sounded like you were really struggling in that two years. So were you just trying mm. to just pushing on and just living this kind of life where you were feeling worse and worse? Or were you actually on a list kind of waiting for your transplant? Yeah, so I wasn't on the list at this point. Um it's just like with transplant, it's almost like this golden period where you're you have to be ill enough to be on the list, yeah. but not too ill that you're yeah. too far gone and it wouldn't work. Right, so yeah. you just didn't qualify so, that whole time until right at the end. Yeah. So, sorry, say that again. So you just, you, oh, sorry, you hadn't qualified, so you didn't qualify for a transplant at that time, even though you were still unable yeah. to work, you were still unable to kind of live your life. Yeah, so my heart doctor, my cardiologist, um, we were just basically going through the mill of trying to use as many of the heart medications as possible. And I hate to say it, but I almost saw my cardiologist as a bit of a God. Like he was the person that kept me alive. Like if there was anything going wrong, he was the person I'd call. Like I had his own personal number. Um, This is the NHS we're talking about here. Um, (laughs) And um, so we went through probably 10 or 11 different heart medications. Um, and then till it gets to the point where it's like, there's no more heart medications I can give you. Like I'm, I'm done. There's nothing else. And that is just so scary when he's been the person that's been able to make me feel better for like 10 years. Mm -hmm. Um, and then that's the point where he says, we're going to have to send you off for an assessment. But even when he sends a letter uh, to advise them to assess me, there's still like a six month to year waiting list wow. to even get the assessment. Oh God. But um, I was really lucky to get a, like a last minute cancellation appointment and you go there and they say, so 70% of people here will be just asked to come back in six months time. You're not going to be ill enough. So we don't know what you're going to be, but you know, 70% of people will just be kind of on our radar and there's me like going, of course, I'm just going to be on the radar. Look at me. Like, I'm not that ill. <laughs> at the end of the two days, they are like, right, you need a transplant. Wow. Your heart cannot support your body any longer. Um, yeah, you need a transplant. And in my head, I'm just like, fuck's sake. Like, there's about 10 doctors and nurses and psychologists in this room staring at me. And I, that's just 
the worst thing with all these doctors just in this room staring at you, like waiting for you to cry. I'm just, I, I was like, I'm not crying. Um, it's, it's just really, yeah, really tough. And there's these nurses, transplant nurses that like basically tell you everything that's going to go wrong with you. So it's, it's, it's kind of comical. They're like, well, your hair's going to fall out. You're going to get cancer. You're going to get diabetes. You're probably going to live 15 years. Um, this, that, this, that. Um, it's one in 10 chance of dying in your operation as well. Did you know that? Yeah, one <laughs> and in 10. You're Go on. One in 10 chance. Yeah. That's a heavy conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a very heavy conversation and you're there with your, your mum. Well, I was there with my mum and dad and you go through it and you're like, I don't know if I want a transplant, you know, <laughs> this doesn't yeah. sound so great. And you start thinking, is having a transplant going to be the end of my life? Or like, this is like a death sentence because I'm, I'm not going to have many years to live. Um, but obviously, you know, your mindset changes and you're like, I, well, I started going, I'm not going to be a statistic. Don't tell me these statistics. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just a very heavy two days. Like you have to do a cycling test, breathing tests, blood tests, um, psychology tests, like all these different tests over two days. And it's really rigorous. Um, so I think that's why I was in shock when they said like, I need, I need a transplant. So I think you never think you're going to like need a transplant. Like it's yeah. just pretty crazy, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So obviously you qualified. They ticked the box. Um, yeah. What yeah. happened? What happened next? Did you stay in the hospital waiting for your transplant? Do you wait for the call? No. So um, they tell you you need a transplant. With me, I've got like a lung condition, so um, they needed to check my lungs out because they were like, you may need a lung and heart transplant. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Luckily, I didn't, but they needed to do the test. So um, that took a couple more months because NHS is really bad with like communications and different teams. Um, but in those two months, uh, me and my brother planned a last minute trip. I had a Jeep at the time, like a yellow Jeep. Oh, fun. And, um yeah, I know. And we we took it through France and Spain as the only way I could really travel was um, on the ferry because, you know, flying wasn't really a thing when your blood pressure's all over the place. So we got the ferry and then we drove through France and Spain and it was actually amazing. And because at that point I was thinking this could be my last holiday when you're on the official list. Like there's no holidays, you're just waiting. And then you don't know how long you're going to wait and you don't know if you're even going to get an organ after waiting. Um, so yeah, so that was pretty amazing going on that holiday. And then from October onwards, so I got on the assessment, I got the assessment in July, October, I got on the list. And then from October to January, I was just admitted to hospital every month for two weeks, not planned, just, just admitted because I was too ill so I'd be taken to my local hospital and they just like leave me in a room because they were too scared to touch me you're like I don't know it's too scared to like they're gonna kill me by doing something wrong so they'd wait for my own doctor to come down um because I guess the facilities weren't good enough um so that kept happening and then in and the end of January I was taken in on the urgent list because I was too ill it was a bit of like an Amy Winehouse rehab moment. It was like, they're trying to make me go to rehab. <laughs> um, 
So I went in for an appointment thinking, oh, I'm going to go back to Bristol to my brothers and have Wagamamas. Do you have Wagamamas in Australia? No, it sounds You need Wagamamas. Um, and so we get, we get to this appointment and they're basically like, yeah, you need to come into hospital and wait on the urgent list because it's, it's quicker. You're going to get a heart quicker because um, you go to the top of the queue. You get a dopamine drip, which is like a hormone, which makes your heart go better. Um, and he was like, it's your choice. You can go home or you can stay in hospital till you get your heart. There's this two sides of my mind. Like one side's like, I just really want to go home to my bed. And the, and the other side's like, <laughs> I should probably stay here and, you know, take away the burden from my parents. And my dad was there looking at me like, please stay here. Um, so I stayed. And then I got up to this. It was a really old hospital at the time. They've moved now. But it was this like Edwardian hospital. And it was just awful. It was just all like very small wards and I get to my bed and I just looked at my brother and I was like, what the fuck have I done? <laughs> I'm like, why am I here? <laughs> um, and yeah, so then I waited for about a month and then I had my transplant, but I had three false alarms in that time. So false alarms is when they tell you you're going to have a transplant. Yeah. And then last minute, they're like, nah, you're not having a transplant. It's a false alarm. Oh, three um, times in that month. Yeah. You're like prepped, yeah. ready for surgery, yeah. ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. It happens a lot. And yeah. I worked a lot in transplant when I was in Sydney. And it, there's a, there's a very, very fine criteria for, you know, the people that are donating their organs to you. Um, and it's very specific dying timeframes that allow you to have a transplant or not and have those organs work yeah. or not. So it's actually can be a matter of minutes between having a transplant and not having a transplant. That's why it's good that you're in the hospital at least. But God, what an emotional roller yeah. coaster of being told Huge three times. Coaster. Just sitting there like, oh. Yeah. So what happened on the day that you had the transplant? So, I mean, number four, lucky number four. Lucky <laughs> number four. Yeah, exactly. Um, it should have been number three, shouldn't it? But no, it was number four. Maybe that should be my new thing. Number, number four, four is a great number. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I had emailed like my my schools I'd been at over the years because I've been to quite a few. And I was really into finding purpose because I had no purpose at that time. So um, I was like, I'm going to create some organ donation presentations and send them out to my, um, to my, my, to my schools that I went to to help uh, educate them on organ donation and also the DCD heart because my hospital was creating this DCD heart, which means there's 50% more hearts to be transplanted from donors so um I had quite a few reply back say yeah like send it through um so I was creating this presentation on my laptop um you know really into it just doing my own thing pretty comfortable in the hospital like oh this is the life like got my pals got my nurses because you get so comfortable after a month and then the coordinator comes around the transplant coordinator comes around the corner and you just, you don't want to see a coordinator. It's like, you know, there's news if there's a coordinator because they're so busy. Um, and I looked at the her, she, I was like, no. She was like, yeah. And she's like, there's a heart. And I was like, oh shit. <laughs> um, so she was like, you know, you need to get ready and prepped by this point and then this point. 
So I think I needed to get ready for like four o'clock. Anyway, I was way too engrossed in my presentation. So I'm there like just doing my presentation. And you're like, like oh, I can't do it again. I have shit to do, okay? I can't, I can't yeah. do this right now. <laughs> I have to spread the organ donation message, guys. So, um, There's a one in 10 chance that I'm going to die, okay? I need to get the organ donation folder out. <laughs> so um, I'm literally at like four o'clock and I'm still doing this Wow. Uh, presentation and then a point at one point I thought it deleted itself and I was trying to find it again and then I was like trying to send it out to my teachers and then my my coordinator was getting really pissed off because I was still in bed I can imagine I <laughs> the thing is after three cancellations you're like seriously like like no. is it really it I don't know <laughs> yeah exactly I, I think I had that mentality of oh it's probably not gonna happen so <laughs> let's wow. do a presentation instead. um so yeah, so then I I got to the point of like washing myself and doing that, and it was all a bit of a rush because I'd left it a bit in a bit of a rush. So then I'm being trolleyed off to the like double doors with the red line over it, um, and my family were there, and I go through these double doors, and it just hit me. I was like, oh shit, like I'm not going back. There's a very prominent, you know, those double doors with the red line. It's like do not enter it's you know it's just very yeah you're like oh shit is gonna go down in there (laughs) yeah shit's going down there so um i go in i just start crying i'm like oh god my my life am i gonna wake up after this um get into the theater and you know you're just looking at this table and you go am i gonna wake up after this like is this gonna be my last memory so you're almost like super exposed to all the senses just going like touching things like, is this the last time I'm gonna touch something um then I had to sign some forms because they forgot to get me to sign the forms so it was all a bit chaotic and then um my surgeon put his arm on my shoulder because I was in a wheelchair at this point um and I just heard this like hi Eliza I'm Dr M- Mr Suey uh, I'm your surgeon everything's gonna be fine and like at that point I was like it's gonna be fine it's good because like you know when you have someone in authority who just seems like they know what they're doing of course he's human but it was just like such a relief to have his presence um and then they were like get on the table so I got on the table and then um I was like you're gonna tell me when you're gonna put me to sleep and they put the mask on like yeah I was out (laughs) (laughs) and I woke up they don't bother counting anymore they're just like yeah yeah not really counting I woke up about, I think it was like seven or eight hours later, which is pretty good for a transplant. Um, I was only in the theatre for like two or three hours. Um, Yeah, I know, for a heart transplant. But apparently, like a lot of medical people say it's like plumbing. Um, Well, it's like, it's it's common. It's more common these days, this surgery. Yeah, they do it a lot. Transplants are everywhere now, so Mm, they've advanced. You had a good doctor, (laughs) Coming to a hospital near you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I I, I kind of woke up after, you know, like when you, because I was sedated in a coma, so I could just hear these, like, people going, like, Liza, Liza, like, can you hear me? Like, are you ready to wake up? And it only came back to me, like, a couple months after this happened. But I remembered, like, using my hands to, like, <laughs> be like, yeah like let's get the tube out baby <laughs> um, I made it 
yeah, like get it out. Um, so then they took the tube out and I slowly started waking up. And there's photos of me on the first day where I woke up. And I think there's quite a few people that do this. But when you're like really ill and then someone takes a photo, you always seem to like, pit, like do a thumbs up. Yeah. You seem photos, oh, yeah. It's just like... <laughs> because <laughs> you're all drugged up and you're like it's all, yeah it's all okay it's all okay um and then yeah it's just a slow rehabilitation um i absolutely hated the uh catheter i'm sure you know look like oh, yeah. about oh, yeah. catheter <laughs> no one likes those things that's a, a tube that goes up your wee hole everybody <laughs> yeah and um by that point, I knew how to like play the doctors. Mm. So a couple of days after my transplant, they were like, oh, you've got to keep it in. You've got to keep it in the nurses. And then the doctor came around and I was like, sigh. That was his name. I was like, sigh. I cannot do my rehabilitation with this thing in me. Like if you can get it out, my rehabilitation is going to be so much better. I can't walk right now. And he was like, oh yeah, fine. Whereas like, I should have had it in, but yeah. um, you just start to get to know like how to play the doctors and what to say to like get what you want. <laughs> of course they were in charge, but I <laughs> thought I was in charge. <laughs> wow. Well, that was, that's obviously so much has happened, you know, since the age of 12 until it was 20, was it 20 when you had your transplant? Yeah. yeah. 12. Yeah. That's a, yeah. that's a, that's a long time. That's and a mammoth eight years. And it's just the start of another journey. Like it's, you know, now we have the transplant and there's a whole nother journey on the other side of that. So how is no, how has that looked? I'm, I'm just thinking about that or that. Like <laughs> I don't know about you guys. But I'm like Jesus. A lot happened, but at the same time, I just feel like I'm so many years behind everyone else my own age because I was there surviving and just trying to like stay alive, whereas everyone else is getting their degrees in like you know science or English and yeah. doing that. So it's interesting how. I've lived so much, but then still feel like it's, I've not lived like everyone else. But then that's that thing of walking on your own path and not comparing, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's like seriously the biggest eight years (laughs) ever. Yeah, I reckon. So obviously you were, you know, you're doing this presentation. You were so into it. You've had your transplant. How soon after you had your transplant, did you get back into that journey of being like, you know what? I want to create awareness. Like I want to, I want to start like spreading the awareness of like transplants and organ donation. Did you get straight back into it? Have a bit of time. So before I had my transplant, when I was in hospital, I set myself challenge of raising 30,000 pounds for the DCD heart thing within the hospital. Um, Cause it, at the time it was 30,000 pounds to receive a DCD heart. Cause they put them on these, these hearts on this like machine that reanimated it. Mm-hmm. So the heart would have blood pumping through it and it was almost restoring the heart till it's like full potential. But at that time it was like 30 K to do it. And they were like throwaway machines. Oh. So it was like 30 K each time. So I was like, I'm going to buy my box. So when I have my transplant, like, you know, so I had raised quite a lot of money whilst waiting because you know obviously everyone felt sorry for me nearly you know at death's door and then I kept going on with that um after my transplant so we got to 18,000 in the end but that first year after transplant like a lot of my family were doing fundraisers I was doing fundraisers um 
So that kind of was the thing. That was my purpose. It was called Eliza's Let the Beat Drop. Oh, um, I love that so much. The pun. <laughs> That's the best pun ever. <laughs> yeah. So that was my thing. And then I kind of, that kind of just ended naturally. And then COVID hit. Um, and I'd had this idea of creating a podcast. Um, and I didn't really have any time. I obviously, you know, life's happening. I was getting jobs. I was just trying to live. Then COVID hit. And I was like, oh, I've actually got time to create this podcast that I had this idea for. So I, I bought like a do-it-yourself podcast course online, uh, bought myself a mic, and I just went for it. And yeah, I was interviewing people. Um, it made, It was actually really nice to connect to people in a lockdown. So, you know, a lot of us weren't able to connect. So actually to meet other transplant patients was really cool. Um, and then since then, I've worked with my transplant hospital on the season um, and also NHS Blood Transplant, which is the UK like transplant network. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've got another season coming out. But it's just getting the confidence to put it out. <laughs> well, you're doing bloody amazing. I, energy. <laughs> yeah. You're doing yeah. so amazing. Like the I'm sure the impact that you're having just having these conversations and also, you know, having these these packs that people can go and do when they're going through the same thing that you've been through. Like it 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 makes you feel less alone. Like, you know, you said you felt quite alone in the process. These yeah, chats yeah. make you feel less alone and these these guides make you feel less alone. Like you can do it and you can get through it. So you're doing so well. Ultimately, the reason why I set up the podcast, exactly what you said, I felt really lonely on my um, transplant journey. And when at that first assessment, when I was chatting to those nurses about, you know, everything that's going to go wrong, we said to the nurse, like, do you have any people who are young, who've had transplants or um, parents that have, you know, had kids that for transplants. And it was like, nah, not really. Like, no, no one that's comfortable chatting to you. And it's like, there should be that like patient community aspect, I think within hospitals in general with that kind of thing. You know, I think there's a lot more within cancer, but transplants are very different. There's not so much support with transplant. So yeah, so my, my kind of tagline is to feel heard more understood less alone mm-hmm. um because although like you know a transplant doctor you know knows everything inside out about transplant or a nurse like they still well, most people haven't been through it yeah who are medical yeah. professionals so having someone that just completely gets it it makes you feel heard validated and like you're not like not guilty to feel like you're just going on about it yeah um so that's why that's why i created it ultimately because I just was a bit lonely and felt a bit shit on mine. Yeah, <laughs> I, I love that, that so much. Yeah. Good on you, girl. Honestly, good on you. So can great. We, can we please bring up um, how you met the queen? <laughs> <laughs> because um, Eliza met the queen, everybody. Yes. There's a photo on Instagram, shaking her hand. Yes. Which is, it's like so yeah, special. I touched the queen. <gasps> touched the queen. And it's like you even more special here. now because obviously you got to meet her before her passing. So yeah. that's like a really special and incredible moment. Yeah. How do you even get asked to do that? Yeah. <laughs> Come on, how did you do that? Yeah. <laughs> can, like, can how we do I do that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so the hosp- the transplant hospital that I had my transplant in, like I said, their hospital was really old and 
grotty and they were moving to a new hospital in Cambridge. So it was, it's honestly like a hotel, this new hospital, every room is private room. It's just amazing. And, um, it, they got the Royal stamp because I think some, I think, uh, Philip had been there having, uh, having treatment. So, um, so the queen ended up coming to open it all. So we, no one knew it because obviously it's the queen and security. And so, uh, the comms guy who I knew quite well, um, messaged me a couple weeks before and it's like, Oh, the opening's happening for Royal Papworth. We're going to have um, some royalty coming. Um, but I can't tell you who. <laughs> so I was kind of hoping it would be Meghan Markle. <laughs> <laughs> just um, casually the queen, like bringing some royalty. Can't tell you just like the most royal yeah. person. <laughs> you can't get more royal than the like, queen. You know, Prince Charles. No, not really Prince Charles. Like Meghan would be cool. Um, so we were just basically going to greet and me and this, um, other girl called Yasmin, who was my friend who I met on this journey as well. Um, so we had no idea who it was going to be till the day. Um, and then we get there, um, and then we're taken up to one of the wards and put in a room and we're like just waiting. Um, and we kind of, you know, told the protocol, like, you know, curtsy, like, don't speak unless you're spoken to. Oh, my God. I, I've heard that that's what they say, but then aren't yeah. they normally, like, really chill and they come up and shake your hand? No? Yeah. So, <laughs> I, swear I, I haven't just, met them. I swear, yeah, yeah, tell me your process. So they gave you this process. Were you shitting bricks? Were you like, oh, my God, like, do I even breathe in her direction? Like, what? Hold your breath. <gasps> it was a very bizarre experience. She had, like, about 30 people behind her, like, security, like, I don't know, just all our people. I don't know what all our people are called, but <laughs> all our um, but anyway, we're waiting in this side room, but she, the, the wards are in like a loop. So she was going around the loop to see someone else first before coming to see us, but she had to go past us. So she's coming through the door and we're like here in a, in a room and she's like walking and then she just stops and then like looks in at us. And I just like wave, stop waving at her. <laughs> Hello, Queen. Did you oh do the proper God. wave? The proper wave? You didn't do a thumbs up? <laughs> no, did not do the thumbs up. I just went like this. Um, and I'm not gonna lie, she just reminded me of my grandma. Aww. She was just really sweet. Anyway, so she went round and then came back and um she was just asking, like, oh, I've heard you've had transplants. Like, what do you do now with your life? And um shook she shook our hands I, I did not expect her to be shaking my hands yeah, i told you they shook um <laughs> she had the royal glove on though oh. <laughs> didn't get to touch her raw hand no <laughs> damn it it is quite um, the times though you know can't be touching the queen yeah i mean fair enough like maybe maybe we should have all wear gloves like do you, do you, we, we don't know who we're touching. True, true. Queen definitely doesn't know who she's touching. Have you been to the toilet or have you washed your hands after the toilet? Mm. <laughs> kind of logical. She's exactly. a logical woman. She's a logical woman. <laughs> what an amazing so, yeah, story. Pretty amazing that you got to shake the Queen's hand, yeah. tell her your journey. Like that that's pretty damn special. It's pretty, pretty <laughs> bloody cool. And then on the uh, afterwards, um, because one of her, I think it was like her PR team um, came up to talk to us afterwards and was like, "Oh, thank you so much. That's really great." Um, when we were coming back down in the lift, she was saying how like, inspirational you two were. Oh, 
Oh. Get you right in the feels, that one. That's so nice. Yeah. Oh, so, so special. No, Billie Eilish saw the Queen and she got told all the protocols and was like they were really strict with her and she was like mm. shitting herself and then she went up and then she's like, the Queen just came over and grabbed my hand. She's like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was it was some celebrity was saying it and she wow. was like, she's like, I'm breaking every protocol right now, but, like, you know, they're doing it. <laughs> wow. Uh, I, it probably is okay if she does it. Yeah. yeah. I mean. She's got to go for it though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if, like, we went in for a handshake, it'd be like, terrorist! <laughs> <laughs> if she does it, it's fine. Yeah, I think God. so too. I love this. So if someone's listening to this and they want to plug into your community, where can they find you? Where can they find all this information? Yeah, so the probably the best place to go is my Instagram, mm-hmm. which is Transplant Chats of Eliza. It's all the same. Um, my website is transplant chats. So there's the podcast. Um, and then on my Instagram, there's like helpful posts about different parts of what transplant life is like. Um, and then I also do my coaching mentoring. If anyone wants more one-to-one support, um, and yeah, that's amazing. That's, Absolutely that's love it. it. Thank what you would, so much. Yeah. What would be your advice to people going through the same thing? Like what, what would you tell someone? I think, um, transplant is the start of your life not the end of it because it's so easy to feel really negative when you're going through the process and it's so so scary Uh, you know the idea of just your your organ being taken out and having someone else's pain it's very surreal and weird um but it's so much better after you've had it like you will be living life to the full and it is amazing and it's just you know you just got to get over that bump or go ride those waves which might not be very nice waves might be a bit stormy but like it will be flat again Oh, I love that. That was like the most perfect yeah. end. I Thank, love you. That. Thank you. Thank so you much. so much, everyone. Go on to the show notes. We're going to put Eliza's details in there. But thank you so much you for so joining much. us today at Keep You Doing Podcast. And we're sending love, life, and laughter to you always. <laughs> 